we are, uh, if, you're, if you're just joining us here uh, for, for the first time, we are in a series during Advent here where we're looking at four names that were prophesied or uh, predicted about the Messiah uh, in Isaiah uh, 9, verse 6, a prophecy that was written uh, nearly 3,000 years ago, 2,700 years ago is when Isaiah wrote this. Uh, You have those four names on the cover of your uh, worship folder. Uh, They're on the screen here uh, as well. And each week we're, we're focusing on just one of those names and trying to understand why this would have been such great news for the people that Isaiah uh, first spoke them to or, or wrote them to and why they should be uh, really good news for us today. Last Sunday, we looked at uh, Mighty God and we saw how God's power uh, was displayed on the cross when Jesus, who coincidentally not, his name means salvation. Uh, the angel said, you shall call him Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sin. That's why he's called Jesus. And he defeated uh, sin and death for us uh, on the cross. That's what we looked at last week when we considered this name, Mighty God. Uh, today, we're going to focus on the third title that Isaiah says the Messiah will be known by, and that is Everlasting Father. And just before we uh, look at this name more closely, let me lead us in prayer and uh, we'll ask for God's help in understanding this. Lord, again, we thank you for this beautiful season and the the truth of it, the music that comes with it, the the lights that, that all point to Jesus as the light of the world. And as we look at this name, this title, Everlasting Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand. Open our, open our eyes, our ears, our, our minds, and especially our hearts to understand what it is uh, that this name is saying to us and means for us today. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. There is a danger, I think, whenever we are in a passage of Scripture that is very familiar sounding to us, uh, to, to read through the words without really thinking about uh, what they mean, and in some cases, what they cannot mean. Uh, Isaiah 9-6 is, is one of those passages, I think. Uh, we see these words on Christmas cards, on our worship folders. We, we hear them sung in so many of the songs of this season. And we can become so used to them that it doesn't occur to us maybe how strange they ought to sound to us. Because they really are strange words. For instance, when we come to this title, Everlasting Father, do we pause and say, wait a minute, how is it that this child born to us, this son given to us, is in the same sentence called Everlasting Father? Mike read this for us just a moment ago, and they're nice words, but they, they go past us so quickly. At some level, at least, this should sound strange. 
to us. Uh, Another example, we know that these words uh, were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This is who Isaiah was talking about. And in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is repeatedly referred to as the Son of God over and over and over again. He's the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, who is, by the way, not the Father. He's not. So when we read these words in Isaiah, does something break a little bit in our brains uh, when, when, when we see this? Do, do we question how or, or, or why it is that the Holy Spirit directed Isaiah to write this seemingly strange name for the Messiah? Something in us should wonder about that. I have have spent all week wondering on this. And you know, it's kind of a tough one because the the Hebrew underneath our English translation here is really rare. In fact, this is the only place in the whole Bible that we find it. it. It takes two English words to say everlasting father, right? But the Hebrew is just one word. And that one word is only five letters long. I, I, I asked a friend of mine this week to be praying for me because I was going to try and preach a whole sermon on one five-letter word. How do you do that, right? The Hebrew word that we translate as everlasting father is aviad. Uh, it's made up of, of two words that are combined together to make one word, one name. Avi simply means father and ad means in perpetuity or, or forever and ever and ever on, ongoing, right? And when you put them together, you get forever father or possibly father of forever. Uh, there's, there's not complete agreement on which meaning is the one that Isaiah intended. Uh, both of those are true. Uh, God is our heavenly father forever, and he's the father of eternity. Now, I'm probably breaking all kinds of, of rules about preaching already this morning because I'm raising all kinds of questions for you that you never even had before. Uh, I'm leading you out into sort of squishy ground. It's like, what? I just want a nice sermon about Jesus, right? Well, let, me, let me try to pull us back onto some some firmer ground here, and and we'll see if we can figure out what this business about Messiah being our everlasting father really means. Um, Just before we talk about what it does mean, I need to address one thing that nearly all Bible scholars agree it does not mean, okay? And I've alluded to it already. Uh, When we read here in Isaiah 9-6 that the Messiah will be called everlasting father, we know that this is not a statement about the Trinity. In other words, everlasting Father here is not referring to God the Father, the the first person of the Trinity. And when I say that nearly all Bible scholars agree on this, there is a minority view, a heresy, uh, that that doesn't believe in the Trinity. Uh, It's a heresy that has existed from about the second century, so pretty early on. It's known as modalism or oneness theology. 
it holds to a belief that says that God is really only one person and manifests himself in three different ways. Okay? So at times, he presents himself as the Father. At other times, he presents himself as the Son, and still other times presents himself as the Holy Spirit. It's, it's almost uh, a shape-shifting view of God, right? But it's not biblical. Um, we serve one God, okay, not three gods, one God, who has three distinct persons. And this is where we come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. One of the easiest ways to disprove modalism or this, this oneness theology is to simply look at passages in the New Testament where you have all three persons of the Trinity showing up at the same time, Right? That sort of disproves this right away. Jesus' baptism is a great example of that. We have Jesus, the Son, being baptized. We have God, the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove, and God, the Father, saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. All uh, three distinct manifestations of the Trinity are present in that same time and same place, okay? So that's, we'll, we'll park that because that's just what it doesn't mean, okay? So you can let go of that one, but the question still remains. If Isaiah isn't calling Jesus the Messiah, our heavenly father, what is he saying here? Uh, most Bible scholars think that Isaiah is talking about the fatherly characteristics of the Messiah, not his, his title or role in the Trinity. So toward that end, I think it might be helpful for us to consider some of the different uh, ways the word father is used in the Bible and then see if it helps us understand what Isaiah is talking about. So one of the ways that father is used in the Bible is to speak of someone as the source or the beginning of something. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 4, very early on in the, in the story of humanity, we're introduced to two brothers. They're like great-great-grandsons of Cain who killed his brother Abel. You remember that story. So we're really early on, okay? Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, we read that Lamech took two wives for himself, one named Ada and the other named Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of all the nomadic herdsmen. His brother was named Jubal, and he was the father of all who play the lyre and flute, Anna. Okay? Now we understand this language, right? We understand that these two guys didn't genetically father all of the herdsmen or musicians who came after them, right? And anyone think that that's what it means? Okay. Good. We, we all get this. So, so father is used in a way to, to talk about something being the first. Um, the apostle Paul refers to Abraham as our father in, in Romans. And he didn't mean, of course, that Abraham was his biological father, his, his dad. He meant that Abraham was the, the source or the beginning of the Jewish people, the Jewish race, right? More 
uh, contemporary uh, example would be Ab- Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he used this kind of language in his uh, Gettysburg Address when he said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Now, did old Abe really mean that 87 years prior, his dad had signed the Declaration of Independence? No. In fact, we know that's not true. So I'm I'm just giving a couple of different examples here to show that we were used to the word father being used in different ways than just somebody's biological dad, okay? There are other ways that the word father is used as well. In the ancient Near Eastern culture that Isaiah was writing in, uh, it was a culture that was highly uh, patriarchal almost said patriotic. It may have been that too, I don't know, but it was highly patriarchal. And this meant that the father had absolute authority in his household. He was literally the king of his castle. What, whatever kind of uh, home his family lived in, right? Whatever the father said, that was the last word on the matter. But that authority wasn't like some dads that I've known, and forgive me if it's any of you, but some dads, you know, they sit on the couch drinking their beer and just order their their wives and children around. And they think that's what it means to be the king of the castle, right? The the authority in the home. That's, That's not how this was viewed. The authority of the father was understood to come with responsibility. The father was responsible for the physical well-being of his family. This included providing for things like food and and shelter. Most dads feel this um, sort of just intrinsically in them, the the need to provide for family. It's it's kind of ingrained in us. It's, It's part of what it means to be a father. Father was also responsible for the protection of the family. He was supposed to make sure that they were safe from anything that might harm them, whether that be wild animals or or warring neighbors or countries. Uh, It was the the father's responsibility to protect them. Father's responsibility also included finding spouses for the children so that the family line could continue on. And in this way, the father sustained the family, not only an immediate terms, but going on uh, out into the next generations. Uh, We know that the father took uh, spiritual responsibility for the family. Uh, Many fathers offered sacrifices for their families. They were sort of under his, his covering. We see this in the early verses of the book of Job. Job was offering up sacrifices to God on behalf of his kids just in case, the Bible says, just in case one of them might have sinned. Because um, they probably would, right? So uh, Job uh, cared for the spiritual well-being of his family. Greg Boyd says that in the ancient Near East culture, 
When you have a person who takes that kind of responsibility for others, he provides for them, protects them, sustains them, watches over their spiritual welfare, and exercises authority over them. When you see someone doing all that, then father is the perfect word to describe them. Another interesting aspect about the concept of father in the ancient Near East a king or a ruler was supposed to act like a father to the nation. Yes, they had authority over the nation, but they were supposed to take responsibility for the people that made up that nation. A nation's failure or success rested on the shoulders of that king. And maybe when I say that, you think of the phrase right, right before where Isaiah says, and the government will be on his shoulders. The responsibility, the authority will rest on his shoulders. Well, you're all pretty smart people and you can probably see where I'm going with all this. But if, if, if all of these things were wrapped up in the ancient Near East understanding of, of father or the the fatherly nature of a king, is there any better word to use for this Messiah that Isaiah was prophesying about? I don't think so. It's a perfect word, right? Let's look at King Jesus in terms of, of these things. First of all, his authority. Ephesians 1, 20 through 22 tells us that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to the church as head over all things. He's the supreme authority. Uh, in Colossians, just a, f- a few weeks ago, uh, we, we saw that uh, uh, Christ is the head over every other ruler and authority. In Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, just just before ascending uh, to heaven after the resurrection, Jesus says of himself, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You see, Jesus is a fatherly king because he is the absolute Authority. But to, to go back to that bad example I used earlier, Jesus is not sitting on a couch in heaven drinking his whatever Jesus drinks in heaven, <laughs> bossing people around. King Jesus uses his authority to, to father us by taking responsibility for us. I was thinking, how how does he do this? Well, one of the the clearest examples of Jesus taking responsibility for us is that he took on our sins, my sin, your sin. Isaiah himself would prophesy about this in chapter 53, where he says, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped. So we could be healed. We looked at that verse last week. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. 
Listen to this. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. Peter says this in in 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Can you think of a more significant way for him to take fatherly responsibility for us? He did no wrong, and yet he took on the responsibility for all of our wrongdoing. And in doing so, he did what Old Testament fathers did for their children when they offered sacrifices for them, except in this case, he himself was the sacrifice. Amazing. Well, secondly, Jesus is a fatherly king to us by providing for us and and sustaining us. Philippians 4.19 is a verse that many of you have probably memorized. It says that God will supply all your needs. How? According to his riches in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. This, of course, not only speaks to his authority, but, but how he sustains everything, holds everything together. Jesus is our fatherly king because he has absolute authority. And secondly, because he takes responsibility for us by taking our wrongdoing on himself. And thirdly, because he's our provider and sustainer. Fourth, Jesus is our fatherly king because he is our protector. In his prayer just before going to the cross, he prayed to the Father, during my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. Now I am coming to you, and I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe. From the evil one. It's it's only in Christ that we can put on the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet that are fitted with the gospel of peace, the, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Even though our fatherly king is currently in heaven, he continues to protect us by interceding for us on our behalf. He ever lives to intercede for us. As we saw last week, he has already defeated our greatest enemy. He continues to protect us until he comes again to set up his eternal kingdom. There's one more way that I think Jesus is a fatherly king to us, and it goes back to that idea of uh, of being the source or the beginning of something. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus is the author, the founder, the beginner of our faith. Colossians teaches us that he is the church's head, that, that everything we need flows from him. Uh, in, in John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the what? Branches. And he says that apart from him, those branches can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Why? Because the life-giving sap of the, of the vine flows into the branches. 
The vine is the source of life for the branches. Galatians 2.20, Paul tells us that we have been crucified with Christ so that it is no longer we that live, but Christ living in us. It's not even us anymore. He is, he is so much a part of us, so much the source that he is our very life. He's the author and finisher of our faith, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. And Father is a really good word to capture all of that. And then it gets even more profound because verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 9 tells us that this fatherly king will rule forever. Forever. The angel Gabriel reinforced this in his announcement to Mary in Luke 1. He says his kingdom will never end. Ever. For Israel, these words, uh, when they were first written, uh, this, this, this had to be really, really good news for them. They had had this string of, of mostly bad kings, uh, kings who were nothing like this fatherly king that Isaiah describes. And when they did get a good king, it, it didn't last very long. They, they all died. Isaiah's words about this good fatherly king whose kingdom would last forever must have sounded almost too good to be true. What about for us today? Living in a world where kings and rulers, governments, politicians repeatedly let us down, break promises, line their own pockets, go after their own good instead of the good of the people. Isn't this good news for us? (laughs) Isn't it? We have a loving, fatherly king who is the absolute highest authority the world has ever or will ever know. But... He uses his authority for our good. He's taken responsibility for us, even taking the blame for everything wrong we ever did. He's our provider. He's our sustainer, giving us everything we need for this abundant life that he offers. He's our protector, defeating the greatest enemy of our souls. And praying for us nonstop. I can pray for you. Your friends can pray for you. But know this. Jesus is praying for you. And he is our source. He is life itself. In my email to the congregation this week, I I shared a quote from Tim Keller. He says, The only person who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is the king's child. That's the kind of access we have to the king of the universe. 
Friends, we are children of the king. And he's a good, good father. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the comfort in knowing that you are the absolute highest authority this world has ever known or ever will know. But thank you that you don't use that authority. You don't use your position to beat others down. You, you use it for our benefit. You use it to lovingly father us, protecting us, taking responsibility for us, providing for us, in fact, being our source of life. This week, may we uh, grow in our understanding of that. May we see ways that you are that to us. And may we find comfort in that. May we feel embraced even by that as we uh, live the lives that you have given us to live. And we pray this in Jesus' name, our everlasting fatherly king. Amen.